Customers Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities. He's been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them. But I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me, and my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. It's 4 a.m., Monday and you're literally sucking baby snot through a tube because she's congested. Man, that's love. And if you love her that much, love her enough to make sure she's buckled in the right car seat. To make sure your child's in the right seat for their age and size, visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Looking out a dirty old window Down below the cars in the city go rushing by All right. Welcome to Growing Up in America, uh, KPFT. Uh, with me, Claire Dutre. I'm Bob Samor. Claire, how you doing? I am doing great. How are you? Very good. Very okay, good. Okay. Uh, so we have a great show today. We do. Fantastic show. So Growing show Up in America. The, the and who's our first guest? Our first guest is Gordon Jackson. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm trying to, oh. to do the whole thing. <laughs> Little technical difficulties, <laughs> yes, we figured yeah. it out. So yeah, Gordon Jackson from Three Strands, so that's mm-hmm. going to be interesting looking at housing and architecture. And speaking of our housing and architecture, you and I did that thing with the American Institute of Architecture last week. Was it we last did. week? I, mean, are we I know, saying? it feels like years ago. Was it this week? It was last week. Okay. Last, last something or other. Thursday. Holy cow, yeah. But it was really good, right? Very interesting. The whole idea about uh, that for many architects, the toughest thing is the hardening of schools, right? Not make our schools beautiful. Beautiful, but yeah, they want that- to lock them down. And realistically, what they were saying, and what I just want to amplify is, you want a community school because when you create a community in a school, they look out for each other. Yeah. And so moving windows all the way up, locking the doors down, does not create that community. You know, and will I, not keep anything out guaranteed. It's I, just I thought that idea of creating a movement for friendly community schools, right? I thought, that yeah. was, you know, that, that was... I like that idea. So, uh, Also coming up in the program, Cody Somerville. He's the executive director of TACI, uh, the Texas Association for the Advancement of Early. Oh, my goodness. I don't even ta- – early education, right, basically, is mm-hmm. what TACI's all about. So we're excited about that. Uh, our data – We're gonna, what's our data thing today, by the way? Oh, I almost cheated and looked. The number is 919. Wow. What do you think that means? You know, I was uh, uh, I did a lot of media this week about the growing up in America and uh, growing up in uh, Houston uh, book that we put out, and so I think that has something to do with the number of mental health counselors. Is that what it is? Is that what it, you, you're going to cheat and look, aren't you? So. Well, I think you cheated and looked. It I has did. something to do with mental health, but now I'm not going to guess because I was well, just I was fact on, checking. You know, we're on Pacifica, but I was on a competing one this morning on PBS <laughs> on uh, NPR talking about this. So that was. Uh, uh, and then also Erica Dotson's going to be with us. She's with Writers in the Schools here in Houston. We're excited about very that. Excited. Trina Bailey, uh, who is going to talk about the future of TikTok. Yes, very you, hot topic right now. You and I love TikTok. We so. do, and social media in general. Yeah. So it's 
We don't want to censor it. And then, of course, Denny Crane's going to be on the program. Denny Crane. So uh, she's uh, one of our staff uh, attorneys, uh, legal fellows. So she'll be talking with us a little bit uh, on a few topics. So that's good. So welcome to Growing Up in America here in KPFT, Pacifica Radio. This is produced by Children at Risk. And this hour, we aim to fill it with all this interesting information about children and families in Texas and Houston. Uh, and once again, it's Claire Dutre along with me, Bob Sanborn. Uh, so you ready for our first uh, little segment, Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down. What are we talking about today? Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down. We are d- discussing if kids should have allowances or allowances for kids. Oh, then the music comes in a little after. All right, so uh, allowances, I mean, why not do allowances? What's the reason to not do an allowance for kids outside if you don't have the money? Yeah, I was going to say, me personally, I did not get an allowance. Um, I got incentives, so we had a chore chart, and you got a dollar for every chore, so I would monopolize mm-hmm. the family chore chart. But some cons, yeah, of course, financial education of your children. So if you're just frivolously allowing them to spend an allowance and not yeah. really keeping them to it or teaching them the finances behind it or have an incentive behind it, then what are you really, what are you driving home in that one? I'm like struggling today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know you are. Uh, so you didn't have an allowance, but you did no, a lot I'd, of, but you did a lot of I'd chores. Work. Yeah, I was taught, I was taught the fruitfulness of work from a young age, but not, not allowances. Wow. I don't remember. I, I mean, we did not have, we could not afford an allowance in our house growing up. Uh, and, and I think that was something that I didn't know. You know, I grew up in Puerto Rico, and it wasn't until I moved to the States that I realized there were allowances, such a thing as allowances. I think we all had chores, but we didn't have allowances. However, that being said, I think I'm for allowances. I think if you can afford it, I think I the idea of kids managing money, uh, learning how to manage their money, getting a little bit of extra, and I think the idea of them uh, having to do chores. But but I think there's good research on this. And what does the research say, Claire? Is it pretty positive? It is. So it incentivized them to explore new interests. I will say, thinking of a kid, even with my chore money, when you see the money for the first time, leave your hands and buy something, you have a sense of responsibility. But you also, it better it better helps your children manage it. So instead of you necessarily purchasing, let's say, like the girl's eye tutor, get makeup at Ulta. So instead of the mom buying it and simply just moving on, based, doing it based off an allowance, one, teaches them financial literacy, yeah. but also has them think, do I really need this? Just yeah. helps financial-wise build some skills. I don't want the parents to think that they have to give allowances for kids to do chores because probably kids should be doing chores no matter what. Oh, yes. That was just my mom's G. It was a dollar per chore. I was just monopolizing. Oh, you were? Oh, you did. <laughs> you just got to check off when you did so it. And it was like, do the dishes, do one dish. And, and is that where your work work ethic started? <laughs> it's, sort of like, I was hustling. hustling. Yeah, I always find a hustle. And I guess my mom started that from a young age. Um, but we did. And then we had summer reading programs. And so we had incentives for that. I do think it's important to incentivize your kids um, for small things just to teach them how good work pays off. Very good. You're listening to KPFT, Pacifica Radio, and uh, this is the Growing Up in America show, Claire Dutre, along with Bob Sanborn. I guess we're uh, ready Moving for Moving to... Yes, yeah. All right, on the line with us is Gordon Jackson from... He's the National Director of Three Strands. Gordon, how you doing, man? I am well. Thank you for asking. I hope you are as well. Yeah, we're doing pretty well. Pretty well. So tell us, you know, what's what's the super brief? What is Three Strands? Because I think what you guys do is amazing. So give us, give our audience an idea of what you guys are working on. Absolutely. The super brief explanation is that we're focused as a nonprofit on preventing human trafficking as well as uh, providing resources and assistance for those who have been in that unfortunate situation to find employment, and then engaging communities to really recognize that this is something that happens within the borders of the United States, It's not something that only happens overseas, and that there are things that we can all do to be advocates and to be, to be aware and just increasing understanding and awareness about 
this horrific thing that's happening and how we yeah. protect people. Gordon, uh, how do you answer the question? Because I get this a lot too, because of the, the legislation that we pass here in Texas on human trafficking. How do you explain when people t- talk about, when people try to politicize human trafficking and they say, well, you know, it's a border problem, when indeed you and I know it's not even close to that, right? Absolutely. And I have those conversations often, and I think it's really kind of reminding people of the wonders of prevention and the idea that this can happen to anyone. This can happen to any youth, you know, those that are vulnerable and those that are just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So it's definitely something that uh, we need to raise our awareness about. But you're right. There are folks who think this happens in third world countries or this happens at the border. Yeah, and one of the most important things is education, like you mentioned, just making sure that folks are educated. And something unique that Three Strands does is the PROTECT system. Can you talk a little bit about that and the intersection of K-12? Absolutely. So PROTECT is a a program designed to really train educators and adults to be able to identify, understand, and recognize the signs of human trafficking. And then increasing their understanding and awareness is pivotal because much like at the airport, if you see something, you say something, they begin to notice signs within a classroom of kids having more than one phone or kids having very expensive wardrobe. They begin to notice things that just stand out. And the other unique thing about what we do is that we then have educators who are known to these kids to then train and teach the kids the ways in which they can protect themselves. And so that's pretty novel. I mean, I could come into a school as a former high school teacher and do a great presentation and raise awareness, but then I'm gone. Right. So having those teachers on that campus and other adults, it could be a bus driver, a cafeteria worker, training those students, they have someone to go to if, in fact, throughout the lessons they suddenly realize, wait a minute, you're talking about me and my situation. Right. It's important, too, especially with the educator-student connection. You already have that relationship built. And so educators, as a former teacher, you hear a lot and see a lot and notice the shifts in students that you can pinpoint. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, when I taught many, many years ago, had I known then what I know now, I would have recognized that there were some situations and some students in in a crisis. And I was unaware because I didn't know. So it really is um, a very special bond between that teacher and that student and uh, and therefore a great way of helping to prevent something from happening. Gordon, uh, you know, a number of years ago, I'm going to say 20 years ago, uh, people didn't even know what human trafficking was. I remember talking to a group and uh, uh, they had, you know, they, they equated it to human smuggling, which was sort of a very different thing. But but now we understand that sex trafficking and labor trafficking are very real problems and have been for some time uh, in the United States. What you know, what is going to be sort of the turning point uh, in the fight against human trafficking? You know, awareness is significantly higher than it was a dec- decade ago. Uh, there's much more legislation that's been passed. But what what will be the turning point where we begin to say we are uh, we are on the road to ending human trafficking? And can we ever be there? Well, I sure hope that we can be there. And I, I really wish I could just pull something out of my hat that says this is the answer, just how we're going to cross that bridge. I do know, much like I remember back in the days uh, when we were really trying to push our kids. In fact, my mother was trying to push me into wearing a seatbelt. You know, that whole notion of prevention, which way back when was, was an argument as to whether or not that was really necessary, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So now that we're in this recognition of the power of prevention, and it's, it's, it would be great to say, well, we've had no cases instead of a kind of an average of 50 million a year in this country. We've had no cases of human trafficking. And so that would be a a beginning of understanding that this effort to prevent and raise awareness is is making the difference. But it has to be talked about. It has to be, I think, a safe discussion to recognize that this happens and there are ways to prevent it from happening. But none of those ways make a difference if we don't talk about it. Yeah. And and how about the the whole movement about ending demand, right? I th- cuz I think at some at some time in the human trafficking movement, right? There's this very friendly dialogue about is it more prevention, is it more demand, or is it is it both of those things or is uh is one of them more powerful than the other? 
I think it's both. Yeah. And I think that that's critically important. And I think it's critically important that as we start looking at what we're providing as resources and education, that we are including that messaging and that instruction, especially for, for young boys and men about you know their role, their understanding of, of society and their responsibilities. That needs to be a part of it because you're absolutely right that decreasing demand and educating on that side of the fence is critically important. Yeah, I just uh, I find that that whole idea about men and boys, right? That's that's one of the drivers when when we go around being the you know boys will be boys or men will be men. It's it's. Uh, it's hor- horrible for, for what the impact of that is on human trafficking and, and the exploitation of women. And it is a reminder. It's a great chance to remind people that, you know, that women can be traffickers, too. Yeah. You know, and so it's not it's more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And thinking, Gordon, Three Strands has an approach, too, on technological literacy. And we know technology advances and it kind of puts especially students as a former educator, you could see they're glued to their phones and computers. How can parents and communities have the conversation and monitor the technological advances in their children while also still keeping a boundary and not overstepping? No, absolutely. And I think the first thing that the part of that puzzle is just this full recognition that, that that phone is more often than not their property, you know, because it's in their name. And so it's still theirs so that they right. can have some access and some control and some monitoring. I think it's a lot of the the education to understand how smartphones are not all that smart when it comes to what people do with them and what people do to others via their smartphones. Mm -hmm. So part of our program includes that type of education and type of awareness about the dangers of of the smartphone. Uh, But it really I think begins with more conversation in schools and helping parents recognize the role that they play in in monitoring and understanding that no child should have something on their phone that a parent can't have access to. Mm-hmm. And if the child is cringing when that you know when that parent walks by the phone, that's a concern. Yeah, and it's a concern that should be talked about instead of well. I'll wait and I won't worry about it because nothing bad is happening. And so we end up, many parents, not having some of those critical conversations at key points. Gordon Jackson is the National Director of Three Strands, a group fighting human trafficking. And uh, thank you, Gordon, for being on the Growing Up in America program. And uh, thanks for all that you do with your work. And we hope to talk to you again. My absolute pleasure. Great spending time with you this afternoon. All right. Goodbye. Take care. You're listening to Growing Up in America, KPFT, Pacifica Radio. All right, let's uh, let's talk a little bit, of Claire, about early education. On the line with us is uh, my good buddy, Cody Somerville. He's uh, the executive director at TACI. Uh, and, and explain, Cody... Texas AEYC stands for Texas Association of Early. I'm 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 missing it up, Cody. Aren't I? You got it. You got it. Uh, good start there, Doctor Bob. The Texas Association for the Education of Young Children. Young ch- education of young children. I knew I was coming close to that. Cody, thanks so much. I know you're out of Austin, and uh, I was up there uh, last week. I guess it was, and we were able to do a big rally on the steps. Uh, Give us a, a very brief update, Cody. What's going on at the Capitol in Austin around early education? Is it good news for us? Is it bad news? Is it Could it be better? Give us a little bit of an idea, Cody. I think there's a lot to be hopeful right now uh, when it comes to where bills are at in the legislature as it relates to early childhood. We saw uh, several key committees take up bills last week related to early childhood and early this week, uh, and we are starting to see some of our priority bills move out of committee, which is a great sign. And uh, the House uh, Appropriations Committee uh, approved um, their version of the budget last week, and it does include an unprecedented $2.3 billion mm. for child care. Right now, that money is sitting over in Article 11, um, and we'd like to see that move to Article 7. Article 11, kind of the wish list, and if we have money, then we'll think about funding it. So it's not necessarily signaling it's a priority, but this is um, for sure the first time that we've ever seen um, this amount of money in any part of the state budget related to early childhood. 
Uh, I love talking about early education and and the real need in this state. And, and what a lot of people don't understand is that uh, this morning I was asked uh, in a media interview about uh, why are thing why are your things looking better in our schools? And I and I basically talked about how in many schools where things are looking better because we have embraced high quality early education in the state of Texas over the last decade or so. And that makes a difference in terms of academic achievement in the schools, especially uh, with children coming from low income families. And so it's sort of amazing, but I know we want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, credentialing and how do we get more teachers to choose uh, to be teachers in early education. Talk a little bit about that Cody and where we're going there. Certainly early childhood education is a wonderful career for many um, Texans out there. However, uh, there's right now um, a struggle across the field to attract and retain highly qualified early childhood educators. And it mostly comes down to compensation. The average early childhood educator in Texas only earns $12 an hour with no benefits. So uh, with that is kind of your reward uh, for getting into the profession. Um, it's not too enticing uh, to many folks uh, looking to figure out kind of what their career path um, is going to look like. We do know that uh, you know, some of those funds that are in the state budget would help raise teacher compensation in child care settings, making it a more viable career option um, for many Texans. We also know, though, that only 17% of our early childhood educators here in Texas have a credential or degree beyond a high school diploma. And uh, Texas AYC, for the last 12 years, has been running the state's largest scholarship program for early childhood educators. Mm. It's been helping hundreds of early childhood educators obtain their CDA credentials and their associate and bachelor's degrees. So they have more training um, and more tools in their tool kit so they can be a more effective educator in the classroom. Yeah, aside from obviously expanding compensation pay for these educators, what are some other pathways the state is looking at? Are there more even high schools looking at expanding maybe a CTE program that could certificate students to go into ECE fields after high school? So so right now our pathways into the fields are a little fragmented. High schools do have the opportunity to offer a CTE program that focuses on early learning and their students would graduate high school with the Child Development Associate credential. However, we don't see enough high schools offering CDA um, uh, training as part of their CTE coursework, and it does go back to the pay. Um, you know, you can invest all the money as a school district to train uh, students in, in high-earning uh, trades like welding and plumbing, uh, and the investment uh, that you're making those students really returns uh, in the form of the level of compensation that they get as soon as they graduate high school. But we don't see that, unfortunately, um, in, in early childhood. And so that is kind of uh, acting as a disincentive to many high school programs uh, for offering a CTE program. We do see, though, however, when we look at our community colleges and our four-year uh, universities, that they're starting to work together um, in many pockets of the state to really think about how do they help students uh, make that transition from a CBA to an associate's degree to a bachelor's degree. Many of our community colleges out there are awarding credit for prior learning if you come in with your CBA credentials. Um, and there's a bill uh, by Representative Tallarico, HB 2264, that would actually require community colleges uh, to award that credit for prior learning further strengthening the pathways. And then we see many of our community colleges and, and universities working on uh, articulation agreements so that mm-hmm. their students can move from that associate's degree to the bachelor's degree Very in early childhood. Yeah, it's important to prioritize any way, any pathway to get them certified and to get them back in the field. But just as you said, we need to start with making sure the field is compensating um, these teachers correctly and providing those benefits. Would any, sorry, technical difficulties, would any pre-K partnerships, pre-K public partnerships help in expanding at least the compensation benefit package for these child care centers? There is potential. Uh, Many partnerships uh, do 
uh, provide adequate funding in order to increase compensation of teachers in childcare settings. It all depends how that partnership is structured right. and, and who's employing the teachers. But they definitely are um, a vehicle. But we do know it's really important uh, that we maintain um, a high, uh, high qualifications for our teachers in child care settings. So that way they can um, achieve pay parity with their public school counterparts. Unfortunately, with a bill voted out of the House Public Education Committee yesterday, uh, which would actually lower uh, teacher qualification requirements mm. for child care teachers uh, teaching in, in pre-K partnership sites. So they would no longer be required to have um, a public school teacher certification. And public school teacher certification comes with a lot of rights. Uh, and it comes with um, a right to be paid according to the state's Uh, salary schedule for educators. It comes with the right to have guaranteed paid planning time so you can develop um, high-quality lessons and experiences. And it also comes with things like a duty-free lunch, um, which we know that working conditions of our early childhood educators can always be improved. And uh, we we have seen how uh, certification has been a pathway for higher wages and better working conditions for many of our public school teachers so we're definitely looking at, at that as a model uh, for how we improve the working conditions and the compensation of our uh, early childhood teachers in child care settings. Wow. Cody Somerville is uh, the executive director at TACI in Austin. Cody, I think, you know, j- just a quick wrap up for me, because I think that a lot oftentimes people don't get that we are going to need to pay early educators more because what we see, you and I see this, Cody, we have this, these child care deserts all across the state. We have child care centers that are shutting down and it's going to have an impact on our economy, right? And and outside of that, it's going to have an impact on the future academic success of so many kids in Texas. So uh, thank you so much for the work you're doing, Cody, and for all your colleagues at TACI and uh, all the members. So thank you so much, man. Appreciate you as well. Thank you so much. All right. Cody Somerville's with uh, Tacey. You're listening to Growing Up in America on Pacifica Radio. From the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation, it's Layla Mazzali. Layla, how are you doing today? Hey, doing well. How are y'all doing? Very good. Hey, how's the weather in California, Layla? I'm just wondering. (laughs) I feel like you ask me that all the time. And whenever you ask me, it was raining this morning. We're on like our 12th atmospheric river of the season. But right now the sun came out. You know what? The weather has never been so like uh, changeable in Southern California as as it's been lately, right? I mean, it used to be able to like, oh, it's Mediterranean climate. It's always great. That's not so, so certain lately, is it? Yeah, it's been pretty bananas. Um, I mean, up in Mammoth, like in the Sierras and stuff, they've gotten like, I forget what it is, like 800 inches of snow, something truly insane. Wow, wow. Um, and, you know, it's it's causing a lot of mayhem out here. Yeah. Um, and we could definitely use the rain, but yeah. some of the other things that accompany it are less desirable. But I like your first, it's bananas. I love that. That's that's the best <laughs> way to put it. The weather is bananas. And so the number today is 919 bananas. 919 <laughs> is the number. And, uh, and, and I'm sorry, you know, I didn't- You were wrong. Re- you were wrong. I was, no, I was <laughs> okay. right. No, he did not. He said- what, what did I say? 19 mental health professionals. But oh, I, I think it's, you it's students per counselor instead of mental. Yeah, you're right. Well, I, I was wrong. I was. <laughs> you were uh, close. Yeah, I was close. What, what, I mean, this is sort of interesting, though, isn't it, Layla? I mean, when we look at uh, students per counselor, so per, per mental health professional, uh, the recommended ratio in America is that you have one counselor for every 250 uh, kids. And and what is it in Texas? And give us Texas, Harris County, and then let's go specifically to the Houston School District. What are those numbers, Layla? Sure, yeah. So it's recommended in Texas to have one per 250 students. Um Texas has a statewide ratio of 753 students per one counselor. Wow. That's already pretty bad, but as we get more local, um, we can see it gets a little bit worse. So Harris County has 919 
students per counselor. Um, and then Houston School District has 1,690 students per counselor, which you can imagine doesn't really equip counselors to be able to adequately serve students. Wow. That's no. incredible. Yeah, not at all. And even thinking of, even if you had the 1 to 250, how split counselors' time is away from counseling in general and mental health supports and providing supports. But if I was overseeing over 1,500 students, uh, just trying to schedule students into classes would take me almost, what, six, seven months? the paperwork. Yeah. The paperwork itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, most of these counselors are not even counseling, right? They're just doing yeah. administrative duties. And mm-hmm. uh, and so what that means is that for kids, uh, and and we rank one of the highest states for these mental health breakdowns without be- paying attention to them, but the trauma of the pandemic, emerging from the pandemic, the trauma of gun shootings like we had in Uvalde, uh, the trauma of... Uh, trying to get back into a routine of the disasters that happen in Texas, like hurricanes in Houston, uh, you know, and to not have mental health professionals to help these kids, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. And I mean, especially in schools, right? Schools are kind of a first point of contact for a lot of kids to be able to um, get screened for mental health issues. Um, and especially, you know, when the majority of kids in Texas schools are coming from economically disadvantaged backgrounds, like school really is at the front lines to serve kids for all of their needs and mental health obviously being one of the most important. Um, and then, yeah, Texas in general, even beyond schools, um, is rated 51st out of 51, including all 50 states in D.C. in access to care for mental health. Um, it's the worst state, including D.C., so 51st in kids with major depressive episodes who were not able to access any services. 73% of kids who have experienced major depressive episodes cannot access mental health services. I mean, it's it's crisis. It's a crisis. And the the good news is that I believe that in states like Texas, we're beginning to realize the importance of mental health, right? A decade ago, we may not have talked about, you know, we, we talked about, well, your parents need to be in your life more. It's not a mental health problem. Our kids don't get mentally ill. I think we're beginning to understand that that is that, that the mental health is a, is a real thing that we need treatment with, but we're still not funding it. And our state legislature is still not accepting federal money to help fund some of these programs. And so it's, uh, uh, we still have a ways to go. We may realize what's going on, but we need we have a ways to go in terms of solving this. Layla Mazzali is with the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk. Layla, thank you very much for all that you do. Thank Thanks, you. Layla. Yeah, and thank you for being on Growing Up in America with Claire and Dr. Bob. So uh, ready for the next one. There we go. With us today is Erica Dotson. She's the executive director of one of my favorite programs in all of Houston, Riders in the Schools. And uh, Erica, how are you doing today? I am doing well. I want to just say I am the acting executive director, but I'm so glad to be here (laughs) with you all today. Well, you know, we love a good actor. So we're good with that, Erica. (laughs) You know, so I love that you could write and act both. You know, I get it. So, Erica, thanks so much. Very talented. Thank you. uh, You are very talented. Erica, tell us, for those that aren't familiar with Writers in the Schools, right, it's, it's one of the great uh, programs for kids, uh, summer program and in-school program for kids. Give us the super brief synopsis, Erica, what Writers in the Schools is. Absolutely. So storytelling reveals our truest selves. And since 1983, uh, Writers in the Schools has worked hand-in-hand with educators and professional writers to teach students the craft of writing. And we've transformed hearts and minds of young people all over Houston over 65,000 students and educators and over 400 Houston classrooms plant their own stories each year with the support of WIT and our amazing writers on our roster. And, uh, you know, my daughter, who's currently a comedian in New York City, by the way, she was in Writers in the Schools, and uh, she loved Ooh. it. But do you have any f- – who are, are there – like, was Beyonce in Writers in the Schools? Do you have any famous <laughs> alumni that were in WIT's? <laughs> Not Beyonce, but uh, Chris Cantor, who's an author here in Houston, um, and there are several others. We have uh, Houston, our Houston Poet Laureate, ah. uh, who is on our roster as He's well, awesome. Emmanuel Lee Bean, and our Houston uh, Youth Poet Laureate, Ariana Lee. 
um, are, are pretty active, not only in the Houston area, but nationally with the work that they're doing, not only with writers in the schools, but inspiring you through their creativity and their writing. Yeah, they're awesome. I've heard some of their work in so far concerts. They do some spoken word. Thinking about that, you hear, um, I I work with a lot of students and as a teacher, they hate writing, they hate reading. And a lot of it is because Mm -hmm. it's always been very academic focused, which is important, but they haven't had an outlet. So can you explain and just talk about the importance of wits and how to really, how you outreach to those students that might have a diversion to writing? Absolutely. And as a former educator myself, I truly understand uh, the challenge that many teachers face when trying to engage students in writing and get them excited about putting words on the page. Part of the work that we do is really get kids to dig deep and express themselves, understanding that their voice matters, that what they think should be expressed and communicated and that they have the power to change the world around them with their voice and with their written work. I think sometimes uh, in schools, unfortunately, the focus is on uh, testing and not necessarily creativity. And this gives students and teachers an opportunity to really allow uh, their kids to come out of their shells and to express themselves in a way that they normally would not get the opportunity to do so. Erica is I know that uh, summer programs are a big deal for you guys. Are you are you guys full up for the summer or there's still a chance for people to enroll for the summer? There is still a chance to enroll if they hurry to our website at witshouston.org to sign up. We are enrolling uh, for not only the Rice location but other camps throughout Houston at U of H downtown as well as the Jewish Community Center. So we encourage anyone who's interested in getting their children enrolled in the summer camps, not to delay because we are filling up very fast, but to go to our website and we will make sure that you get the opportunity to at least get on the waiting list if not enrolled. Let me ask you one other question Uh, for parents out there who think that their kid is talented. And so most parents think their kids are talented, but in, in, in regards to writing, how can a parent sort of, uh, understand that their child maybe has more potential than they're seeing or that maybe l- let me nurture this talent. I think my child is a, is a good writer. What are some of the things that parents should be doing around that? Uh, absolutely. I think it's important for parents to take time with their children to hear about their interests. And once you find out what their interests are and what motivates them, allow them to write about that. You know, not necessarily about a text that they're reading or a subject that they're connected to in school, but also the things that they like to do, the things that excite them, and just getting words down on the page. The blank page can be very intimidating at first, and so maybe just starting kids with short paragraphs and summaries about their day or about the activities and hobbies that they're involved in, Mm. just to get them comfortable. I think it's important for them to know that, uh, as I said earlier, what they think matters and their experiences are so important for them to communicate to others. Yeah, Yeah, and we kind of talked about this, but something I was excited to see is since we can't enroll every student in these programs, y'all do offer professional development. What are some roadblocks when these teachers and administrators come in that you hear time and time or maybe misconceptions that are easily debunked in the first week or first hour of PDs? Yes. So... First of all, most teachers are very excited about the work that we do. However, they don't know how it's going to fit in their classroom. They don't know how they're going to find time to spend with kids to excite them and enliven their lessons. However, through our collaborative work that we do for teachers, we show them how to interweave uh, emotional, social emotional practices as well as other development skills throughout their lesson so that students feel excited about participating and find their voice even in uh, some of the most challenging texts and written work. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, you hear time on task and there's almost a diversion from SEL, but it's it's not, it's important and WITS has a really unique way of integrating it. Like you were saying, it should be a natural flow of student interest to curriculum. I think it's so important, especially right now with so much going on right. in schools and in our world. You know, you'd be surprised how many um, kids have, have things to say, to process, to get out and don't have the space to do it. And so fortunately, through this program, 
they are able to get all of the the fear and the angst that they may be carrying around out. And when they do that, they're able to go on with the rest of their day uh, with confidence and with joy because they've gotten it out. They've shared what they feel, and they've also been affirmed by the writer in the classroom that what they wrote um, is important and they are seen through their writing. Erica, are there programs like this, uh, like Writers in the Schools, all over the country? Are there different names? Uh, or are we sort of real, uh, you know, very lucky in Houston to have a place like you guys? Or is it well, both? Well, uh, <laughs> we, we are. I think we are very lucky to have Writers in the Schools here in Houston. But we do uh, have a WITS alliance. And there ah. are other WITS organizations across the country. And if you would like to know more about those programs, there is a link on our homepage to the WITS Alliance, and there are programs in New York as well as uh, Washington, uh, uh, Washington State, excuse me, and up in California as well. So if you would like to know more about the other programs, that is where you would find it. But we also do uh, WITS on Demand in our Houston wow. office, uh, office so that if there are teachers and educators in other parts of the country or the world even that want to experience what it's like to uh, have a WITS writer working with your students or with your teachers, there's an opportunity to do that with the work we provide with WITS On Demand. You guys are the perfect example, though, of time on task but still having fun, right? So kids are still immersed in academia and sort of academic rigor, but they're having fun. They're expressing themselves. It's sort of like the the perfect, perfect thing that we should be doing with our kids. Erica Dotson is the acting executive director of Writers in the Schools in Houston. She is a great actor and she's a great writer. And Erica, thank you so much for the work that you and your entire team are doing. And uh, thank you for being on the Growing Up in America program. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. All righty. Take care. Were you a big writer uh, when you were in school, Claire? Or no, you, no, you, I don't mean liked, to be a hypocrite on you. Like, I you hated science, reading. But you like science and math more than anything, I right? I did. I was the, the STEM, which I know does have reading and writing, but I was very much in the math. If you can have one answer, it seemed more logical to me than yeah, reading. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's good. There's a there's a mix for everyone. But it, mm-hmm. but the good thing about writing though is that you know you could get a lot of these sciencey people as well. And right, right. So very good. Hey, up next uh, here on the Growing Up in America program, uh, Trina Bailey's with us. She is an attorney and author. Uh, she was one of our speakers at our State of Black Children's Summit, and we want to talk a little bit about social media and the future of TikTok. TikTok is all over the news, yeah, and if scrutiny. you and if you watch TikTok, you it's all over. TikTok, you know that they were all over <laughs> the, the news. The news of as TikTok well. is also on TikTok. So, uh, Trina, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, Dr. Bob. How are you? Very, very good. So, Trina, let's talk about TikTok because um, a lot of stuff going on there, right? I think if if you weren't on TikTok and you didn't know anything about it, you would really think, you know, this is uh, this is like really bad for our kids. Is is it bad for our kids, Trina? You know, I think it's. I think. The intention behind TikTok probably isn't, but I do think that, um, unfortunately, TikTok has unclean hands in a lot of respects when Uh it comes to privacy and um, security when it comes to our children. I think it's a great venue uh, for children to be creative and to self-express and to socialize, particularly for those children who find uh, in-person encounters so difficult. Um, it has a, it's a fantastic source for educational content as well. And in, in this day and age, it's important for young people to build skills um, such as video editing, content creation, and communication, right? We just talked uh, about writing and writing scripts for TikTok videos, practical application that many children um, could develop skills in writing in, in, a, in a way that appeals to them. But on the flip side... We have definite issues with cyberbullying. Mm. Um, they're being exposed to a lot of inappropriate content yeah. um, because of how social media platforms are designed. There is a definite issue um, with the development of uh, technology addiction. And um, as, I, as I referenced um, previously, privacy concerns. Yeah. Um, our children's data is being collected from these platforms and being sold, being used in order to draw advertising dollars 
and make money for these platforms. And, and we're talking about TikTok today, but in many ways, uh, and I know that we've talked about this on this program in the past, it, it, it's it's a lot of the platform. It, it's it's everything that we're using in a sense that they're collecting Google and Facebook and uh, everyone's really collecting a lot of this data. It's it's and, and this addiction is not just with one app; it's with many, isn't it? Absolutely, I think TikTok's in the hot seat. Yeah, um, but any any legislation that comes down is going to apply to Facebook, to Instagram, um, to YouTube, and and, and to others. Um, so. I think that's why all of the big players in this space are all watching it very intensely. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is um, I'm obviously we talked about on TikTok and I'm on a lot of similar age groups. So Gen Z up to probably people in their 30s. And they're all talking a lot about the fear that it seems almost of a mass censorship coming. And I'm not sure about the legitimacy of that, but a lot of it is the fear that TikTok is used as a primary organizing tool as well. And so it gets information out. And there are some sides, of course, with social media in general that are darker with cyberbullying and things like that. But people are worried of this almost, they feel like their voice is being censored, the ability to communicate with peers, organize, coincide. Um, Do you see this effect having a trickle down on social media censoring as a whole, or it'll die down after this trial? Oh, no, I think you're, I think you're onto something. And I think that, um, while the issue is being presented more of a child safety and security issue, I think the ripple effect are suppression of, of viewpoints that are very controversial and, um, and destructive from, from some political narratives. You know, young people are mobilizing and they have a voice in, and um, the young people, and if you look at who sponsors a lot of this legislation, there seems to be an, an age war going on. Yeah. Yeah. There seems to be older people <laughs> who yeah. are wanting to prevent younger people from having access to, um, to platforms like these, like TikTok, who, um, who stand the most to lose, if you ask me. The older people are definitely, um, are, are definitely scared. <laughs> and I think... TikTok has been picked out a lot because it is Chinese. And so, you know, it has a a Chinese owner and uh, people worry about the data going to China and so forth. And so uh, that's very political in and of itself. But I think, Trina, maybe, maybe give us an idea, right, as parents, right, because in some ways... Parents can't just say, uh, state legislatures, please protect our children from this. In many ways, parents need to be the front line or on the front line in terms of protecting kids with this, don't they? Oh, absolutely. And and the problem is that for many, I have three teenagers of my own. Uh, yeah. And in many ways, they're smarter than I am when it comes to this technology stuff. And, and the safety mechanisms that they try to put in place, um, kids like mine are able to work around quite easily. And so um, I think a lot of desperate parents want to turn to other platforms and experts to say, um, we lack the technical sophistication to limit our our kids' access, so we want you to do it for us. Um, But I think that the Supreme Court has already spoken on issues when it comes to um, suppressing the constitutional rights of even young people, of minors. And what we're going to see is this robust legal fight taking place around the fact that there has to be an actual problem, a specific need that they're solving with the steps that they take in the legislatures around the country. And while Utah may be the first mover with their recent state bill, um, we can expect other states to follow suit. Um, So I think in the short term, we're going to see a lot of kids being denied access to spaces on the internet because of these laws. Um, but in the longer term, I think that I am, or I hope, how about that? Yeah. I hope that we can find some moderate, um, solutions and a policy, uh, policy solutions that both protect the privacy and security of our young people, um, but allow them meaningful access to information that comes from these platforms. Right. Even as a high school teacher, it worries me because kids find a way. They'll find a way to communicate. They'll find a way to chat. So blocking them out of a more public space could drive them to just deeper parts of the Internet that we can't control and we don't know how or who they're reaching out to at that point, even if it's just to interact with one another. It's better to have it more on a Oh, absolutely. And then under State Bill 152 also, the Utah Utah law, you're looking at 
they're wanting to collect information to verify the age of the person signing into this TikTok account, right? Mm -hmm. So that means they're harvesting more (laughs) private data, collecting more data that they're trying to prevent. It it, it seems counterintuitive. So who's going to be watching the watchers? Right. Yeah, I think I I think the problem right with this and, and and I wonder Trina if if this is very similar to, you know, when the 60s came along and everyone was worried that the Beatles had long hair and they they were <laughs> destroying the mores of our children. And then when MTV came along, you know, boy, MTV is ruining our kids. And then when hip hop emerged, oh, this is uh, you know, you know, I I I think there are these times that uh to, to use your word, old people get their 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 arms <laughs> in the air, right, around some of these things when it's really just uh, something that, uh, you know, unfortunately, TikTok users will be voting Republican in 20 years, you know, if they're affluent enough in some ways, right? I think it's, and maybe not, and I can only hope, right, but uh, uh, that they don't. But, but talk a little bit about that, Trina. How much of it is... Uh, sort of what's going on right now, sort of this wave of people not knowing what it is and, and how much of it, because there is, I, I do believe there's more of a danger with social media than maybe there was with the Beatles or MTV uh, because uh, the, the, the whole bullying thing and, and the cyber bullying. There, so there's more there, but how much of it is just people not understanding? Well, I think it's too, I think it's both people not understanding or not having the sophisticated background that our children have from, I mean, our children were raised in a world where the internet has always exist, yeah. existed, right? Um, but I look at cases like Chase Nasca, who was a, a young 16-year-old boy who committed suicide. His parents have filed suit against TikTok, claiming that um, the For You page on TikTok platform was feeding him mm. Um, content that pushed him over the edge. Mm. And I think that never before in our, in our history mm. has, a, has there been an, an ability or a medium or a platform that has been able to tailor content to individuals. I mean, you, when I was growing up, we used to turn on the, the nightly news as a family. <laughs> and now everybody can be on their own device watching their own content and nobody else around them can know what you're watching. And I think it is, I, I think that social media platforms, and if you haven't had a chance to watch The Social Dilemma, I highly recommend mm. it. A documentary on Netflix, and one of the, the most compelling statements I heard is, is a social media um, founder who says he didn't let his children pick up social media until they were 16. Yeah. Now, he's on the inside of this stuff, so he knows. Um, but I think it's also responsibility of us older people to get educated and yeah. to learn what it is and to become involved. And we cannot disengage. I'm on TikTok because I want to know what my kids are watching on TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there's, there, we have to take advantage of, of privacy settings and monitoring. But yeah. really, and, and I agree with you, Dr. Bob, the, the first line of defense is the parent in the home. Yeah, Trina Bailey, attorney and author, uh, and uh, one of the speakers at the State of Black Children's Summit talking about the future of TikTok. Trina, thanks for all you do. Take care of those kids of yours, and uh, thanks for being on the Growing Up in America program. Thanks for having me. You guys have a wonderful day. All right, take care. All right. All right, going to our good buddy, Danny Crane. Uh, Danny is with the Texas Racial Equity Co- Collaborative, uh, part of Children at Risk. She's also a registered nurse and a law student, and she's like going to town. Danny, how you doing? Hi, Dr. Bob. I'm doing well. How are you? Very good, very good. You know, we were sitting here talking, Danny, and, you know, there's a famous Denny Crane, right, who was on Boston Legal. Were your parents like big fans of Boston Legal? <laughs> No, not at all. <laughs> he wanted a yes so bad. Oh, it's just. Uh, I know, you know, but no. You no. Know, when, when you and I were in Austin together, just sort of like oh, Danny Crane, Danny Crane, you know, anyway. So, uh, Danny, give okay. us a little bit of an idea because I know uh, I want to do the, I want to get to the fun five questions with you, but juvenile justice, uh, you know, we mm-hmm. did our growing up in Houston report yesterday, juvenile justice was something that was such a big deal, right? In, in terms of there are so many kids that, 
that get inequitable treatment because of juvenile justice. Give us a sort of a, a snapshot of some of the things going on there. Okay, so you can't talk about juvenile justice without speaking about the school uh, to prison pipeline. Yeah. And with that is it takes it, it brings about chronic absenteeism and how that correlates with uh, student performance and their contacts or number of times they're involved with the with the justice system. All of that and the disproportionate and inequitable uh, statistics that show that Black and Brown children are disproportionately affected by the uh, those two occur- those occurrences and all of those coming together and working not in the favor of black students, particularly in Harris County. Uh, one statistic that really stands out to me is that black students in Harris County, where we live, are only 19% of the student population, but they are 30% of all suspended students. Wow. And that's significant because out-of-school suspension is what? chronic. It, it creates an absence. Oh, and that's chronic absenteeism yeah. is so closely correlated with that because if you have one out-of-school suspension, you're roughly about six times as likely to have the justice system um, in your life, to have contact with that, where uh, if you have one in-school suspension, you're about twice as likely to have justice system involvement. So, And we know where justice system involvement at a young age leads to. It right. leads to poor school performance, which increases the dropout rate for those students who are disproportionately black and brown. And if they don't make it through school, the likelihood that they will have further involvement with the justice system as an adult increases significantly. So those are some of the things that really are affecting our students here, particularly in Houston, in Houston, the Houston Independent School District. Mm-hmm. And there's things that we need to do to help make that better. Yeah, it's important. I remember my school was intentional. It's important for every school to be intentional on looking at their discipline reports, looking at where they're referring students, why they're referring students, and really prioritizing. For instance, I know one school I spoke with, it was so many dress code referrals that they just rewrote the dress code. And so choosing to pick your battles, but also doing an internal look at what your school is. Danny, I think it's what, what's interesting is that the comparison of the offenses that people are getting discipline, discipline mm-hmm. for, when you compare it to white kids right. and black and brown kids, the, the offenses are exactly the same. It's not like there are these horrendous other def- offenses. They're exactly right. the same, and black and brown kids get an escalation of discipline with these right. same offenses. Right, and that's what I was going to talk about because, and even with the arrest, of those African-American students, less than 20% of those arrests are for violent or violent, violent incidences or things involving a weapon. And even the incidences that involve weapons, more often than not, the weapons identified are the fist, so fist fight. Um, and, and we also have to talk about how there is an increase in, in their own reports, the, the Houston in the Houston Police Department's report that the fastest growing portion or division is the, the school police officers. Now, we call them, uh, what do we call them? Support resource Oh, yeah, officers. resource officers, yeah. yeah. Change the name, still the same. The they same are armed in our school with, with pepper spray, tasers, guns, canines, and batons, and they're presence is increased and you know if, as, if, if you talk yeah. to superintendents about those resource officers and you say have you thought about getting rid of them? never do they think have we thought of it's like there's no dialogue at the school level about right. getting rid of them it's just it's just ridiculous danny i'm sorry that we're running out of time but i did want to ask you one fun question and then i want to bring okay. you back to talk about this but uh, we always end with a fun question before we go a last one last question for you what did you want to be when you grew up because you 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 you're a nurse you're a lawyer what did you want to be when you were growing up when I, when I was eight years old, I decided that I wanted to be an attorney. So in May, that would be the realization of my eight-year-old little girl, little Danny Dream. There you go. So Danny Crane is with the Texas Racial Equity Collaborative. Thank you so much, Danny. Thanks for being on Growing <laughs> Up in America. And we'll see you next week. We do this, Claire, for? Every week for children. For children.
in my taxi cab, everybody's looking at me now.